Hey, good morning. If you're joining us online or you're here in person, really glad all of you are here. I'm Charlie, uh, lead pastor here, and again, very thankful you're here, especially if you are new. And a uh, quick update, uh, some of you, most of you guys know that we have been raising money uh, for some new stuff for our worship, new stuff for our kids, and for our missions budget. And last week, we are at 45000 Just a week later, now we're already over sixty. And we're very excited about that. This is moving very quickly and just appreciate all of you guys. Just kind of wanted to give a reminder to everybody who is still just kind of praying and thinking through what they're going to do. You can go to thegrovechurch.org slash give. Everything you need to know is there. You get some updates. If you don't know, you get some, get the videos there of kind of what we're raising money for and why and uh, all the information you need to get signed up for online giving is there as well. And we are in week three now of a series in Daniel, and Mark kicked it off a couple weeks ago, and I was here uh, last week. And last week, we're just kind of, I, I brought up this story about this car trouble I was having, and the idea around it was, you know, when you're having car trouble and you feel like you kind of got to, sometimes you feel like you got to fight with the, the dealership, which is kind of what I was doing, that there's just a lot of situations you kind of don't know how to handle. Like, what is the Christian way to fight somebody? It's kind of, kind of the idea there. Like, sometimes this is not always clear in our life what you're supposed to do. And to kind of catch you up on that, I'll give you a little update too. Catch you up if you weren't here last week. Um, we'd had some car problems earlier. We had to get rid of one car, replace it. And then I got a different car, gave my car to oldest daughter, Maley. And then that car it had an engine problem. Check engine light came on. It was shaking. And you wanted to think, oh, it's just some kind of something small, I'm sure, Took it to a mechanic and they're like, this is bad, bad. You're going to have to take it to the dealership. It's still covered under warranty, but you're going to have to fight them. But they were like, so it's totally bad. I take it to the dealership and they're, they give me a bit of a runaround. It was, it was, it was very unsettling. And I just, mm. like I said, and that's kind of what birthed it out of it. It's like, I hate this kind of this feeling that you get sometimes that in order to win, you have to fight. And I want to fight. And it was just uncomfortable. I called corporate and I was like, hey, we got to figure some things out. And I had a really good conversation with them that was really all of that was just kind of birthed out of in my heart was the conviction that God put on me based on some of the things we talked about is like, do I believe all of this is up to me or am I leaving God's space to set up, to, 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 to step up here? And so I'd spend a lot of time praying and then all of a sudden it seemed like everything kind of turned and everything went well, like it was all gonna work out. And then Thursday rolls around, I get a call from the dealership and they say, yeah, we looked at your car today. The check engine light is no longer on. The code has been cleared. It's not there anymore. And we drove it around off and on all day and we cannot get any, this car to show any sort of problem at all. So I don't know how you feel about things like that, but to me, that's just like the, that's like the worst case scenario a lot of times. It's like, it's like going to the doctor. You know something's wrong. You go to the doctor and it's like, we took all the tests and nothing's wrong. I'm like, no, something's wrong. I, I need something. I need, I need to know something. So I'm looking at this guy and, I'm, and again, my heart, I'm just real suspicious. I'm like, so you're um, telling me this car's fine then? No, no, that's not what I'm saying. So would you give the keys to this car to your 24-year-old daughter? And you could tell like maybe like a lawyer was in his brain a little bit, like he was afraid to answer the question. Kind of like, ah. No. <laughs> like, he just, like, like, like it was just him and me and he got real low and whispered it. No. Like, okay, well then what am I, what am I supposed to do? What am I supposed to do? He said, well, we can just start fixing things and maybe guess at the problem or you can start driving it. And if it comes on again, you just come immediately to us. Don't turn off the engine and then we can do something about it. And I'm like, man, that's just... Mm-hmm. 
but I'm still trying to stay in a good spot. So I have it now. I'm back in the old red Hyundai, like me, like reunited. It was like, it was like we're all together again. Do not clap. I don't need, I need your sarcastic clapping. <laughs> have mercy. Um, and I don't know, what am I supposed to root for? Do I want it to come on tomorrow? Like I've had it since Friday. I, want to come on, I, want to, I need to come on tomorrow. So can you reach and be done with it? You know, do I, I think, well, maybe God healed the car. Like, I, like, 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 I don't know, but I want to keep praying. I want to keep saying good. And I ask myself this question, which is going to kind of transition kind of what we're talking about today in Daniel. What, what it, you get into a situation like this, you're praying, you're asking God to, to do something. What should I expect from God? Not what do I want? I know what I want. I want there to not be any problems. And to what degree there are problems, I want corporate Hyundai to pay for it. I know what I want. What do I expect? Do I expect God to do that? Is God required? Is God required to come through for me in the way that I want him to? Is he required to come through at all? Is, is, is he even like, what do I expect from him? And, and it's different. Again, expect is different than what do I want? Because we can find ourselves, we're going to look at another situation here where Daniel's friends find themselves in a real trial. And they're showing a lot of faithfulness to God. They're choosing to do the right thing in a very difficult situation. What should they expect God to do for them? All right, so we're going to be here in Daniel chapter 3. Make sure we're kind of caught up. Everybody's caught up kind of on the history, kind of where we are. There were two kingdoms of Israel, a northern kingdom and a southern kingdom. The northern kingdom has already been wiped out. The southern kingdom remained for a little bit, but was conquered by the Babylonians, which is kind of the regional power at the time, a very brutal, brutal dictatorship, brutal kingdom. It was a very brutal war, a lot of torture, murder. And then a lot of the elites that they captured were then exiled into the capital of Nineveh, Babylon, with the idea of essentially the kind of going through a like an assimilation program, a brainwashing program to try to rid everyone, wherever you're from, any national identity you have, any ethnic identity you have, any religious identity you have, and to just view yourself exclusively as a Babylonian. We saw that in chapter one with Mark, who's talking about them trying to get them to violate the diet that they feel like that, that they believe the Old Testament was calling them to, and they chose to honor God, and God showed up. Um, last week, we see, again, th- this... This king, Nebuchadnezzar, just kind of being brutal and crazy. And Daniel is faithful. It says he was, showed wisdom and tact and God showed up to kind of support him. And we find ourselves here in Daniel chapter 3. It's a very popular story. Some dudes are about to get thrown into a fiery furnace. And you may be familiar with that. Either because you grew up in church. VeggieTales, Rack Shack and Benny, Chocolate Bunny. Who's with me? Who knows what I'm talking about? Okay, let's see. It's, it's always good for me to ask that question because it kind of shows the background of everybody here. But it's actually, it's a really cool story. And it means something very personal to me. I'll give you a little background here. In fourth grade, children's choir, I played King Nebuchadnezzar in, in the musical. And if you have any familiarity at all with that particular musical, please come find me after service. I would love to know anybody else that even has any idea what I'm talking about. kazoos? Who played kazoos? <laughs> Woo, yeah, Daniel chapter three, verse one. King Nebuchadnezzar made an image of gold 60 cubits high and 6 cubits wide and set it up on the plain of Dura in the province of Babylon. 
So King Nebuchadnezzar has built an idol, giant golden idol. It's basically said that everybody is going to have to worship this idol. So we're kind of in the next phase here of his brainwashing assimilation program. Whatever God you think you worship, whatever God you thought you were connected to, forget that. This is now your God, this giant idol. This is what you are now going to worship. Verse 6, Daniel chapter 3. And whoever does not fall down and worship will immediately be thrown into a blazing furnace. So they have this furnace, essentially, this kind of this this both function as a heating furnace, but also as a torture murder device, right? I mean, they have this thing, it's like, and if you violate this, you're going to be thrown into there. You're going to be executed, essentially burned alive. And therefore, as soon as they heard the sound of the horn, flute, zither, lyre, harp, and all kinds of music, all the nations and peoples of every language fell down and worshipped the image of gold that King Nebuchadnezzar had set up. So now for the people who are wanting to be faithful to God, there's now an incredible amount of pressure upon them. You either worship this idol that is no God at all, or you remain faithful to God and then you are going to be executed and burned alive. And so they find themselves in this, in this very, I mean, it feels like a very impossible situation. I mean, one full of fear, like, like you now, you're being pressured, you're being forced into idol worship. Now, it's highly unlikely that at any point in any of our lifetimes that we're going to experience this sort of pull towards worshiping an idol as, as clearly and literally as what they're having to experience. You know, it's very unlikely that there's ever going to be, hey, no matter who you are, you now need to declare your religious allegiance exclusively to this other fake God. But this is what happens to them. But that doesn't mean just because we don't find ourselves in this death you know, life or death situation with a literal idol to worship. It doesn't mean that we don't feel a lot of the same sorts of pressures. In fact, I would like to say it like this way, that the world does put a lot of pressure. The world puts a lot of pressure on us to worship other things. There is pressure out there in our world for you to be an idolater, for you to give your worship to something other than the creator God of the universe. Now, I don't know how long you've been going to church, what kind of churches you went to, but it seems like I've heard plenty of talks around this where at some point the speaker, the pastor, preacher, whatever, starts talking about idols and things that can be idols in your life. And, the, and, the, and my least favorite version of this is when they just kind of start describing your hobbies. And you know, there's all sorts of things to be an idol in your life. Watching sports can be an idol in your life. And that's when I start thinking, I'm gonna, I'll, I'll fight you. I'll fight you. Right, because it's like anything, and you almost get this feeling. And I've heard, I read this actually the other day. I won't tell you from who, because I don't. It, anyways, basically this idea of if you have something that you enjoy, a hobby that you enjoy, that's, that's, that's idol worship. Or if you enjoy, you can enjoy it a little bit, you can't enjoy it too much. Like, I mean, that's just, that's, that's too far. We're not talking about that there's something in your life other than God that you enjoy or that even you enjoy it a lot. That's different. Like you may have a habit and it may be a bad habit. Your bad habit may become an addiction, but that's a different category. We're talking about an idol. We're talking about something that you give your worship to. So again, this is a very literal sense for them. For us, it's a little more metaphorical, but it's the same idea. And we'll say it this way. Like, what is the thing at the very top of the chain, of your decision-making chain, of the thing that determines your values, what you believe and who you are? What's at the very top? 
does God inform your thoughts about everything else? God tells me what a marriage is supposed to be. God tells me what money is supposed to be in my life. God tells me the kind of friend that I'm supposed to be. God tells me what my morality is. God informs every other area of my life. Or is there something else? Are there things in your life that in fact are such a core value and a part of who you are that it is those things actually tell you what you're supposed to believe about God? Do these things that I believe that are these core things to me, do then I believe them so much I go to the Bible and I adjust the Bible to the thing that I believe, to this other value? And if you were here in the series before this, we talked about this with respect to money, that suddenly money becomes so important to us, our desire, our craving, our desire for more, that we take that with us to the Bible and suddenly we interpret the Bible based on my desire to have more. And so, and, and there's certain passages then that I choose to ignore. Or you hear this from some people, you know, tithing, that's only in the Old Testament. It's only in the Old Testament law. Jesus said we don't have the law anymore. And suddenly, because, because people want too much money, they want a lot of money, suddenly now we're experts on which parts of the Levitical law apply to a New Testament Christian, right? Suddenly, suddenly now we're all experts on that. But really... I, I want, and what I want determines what I believe about God and what God expects from me. But it's not just money. Power is the same thing. Prestige, maybe comfort. And really what all those things have in common is I, actually I'm the idol. What I want, what I think is best for me, what I think is going to make me the most happy. And then we say this, we, people say this all the time to justify some irrational, not necessarily irrational, but some ungodly way of thinking. Doesn't God want me to be happy? And that, if, if that then becomes, my happiness becomes the idol. And so then what I want and what I believe is going to make me happy, I go to the Bible. It's like, well, if I follow that, I wouldn't be happy. If I did that, I wouldn't be happy. If I abstained from that, that would make me happy. So I adjust and I modify these things because what I want is of what is most important. So what I believe about my relationships, my money, my work, my sexuality, all these things, what, what feels what I desire, what I believe is natural, what I want, what I believe that will make me happy, informs everything else. I'll give you one more. And... Um, I don't want to hang out here too long because I can go on a full-blown rant and that's all you'll remember and it's really not the primary point of this, but it feels important uh, two days out from an election. Let me just say, it's going to be very, very clear in a lot of different places that your political beliefs and your affiliation to a political party for a lot of people is becoming an idol. It is becoming a thing that that is more my primary identification lies. It is the, term, the determination of my primary values. And I bring the values of my particular party and the things that my people in my tent believe. And I take those things and now I reinterpret the Bible differently. <clears throat> and there are things that you know, that you know for certain that your particular group believes. That if we took it out just individually and said, this right here, do you think God thinks this is a morally good thing? And if you looked at it, you're honest, like, no, it's not. 
But when I put it here under the core, our core beliefs, it becomes a good thing. Or at a minimum, we all become libertarians. You know what a libertarian is? Libertarian is somebody who's like, the government should just stay out of it. Well, it's not that this is a good thing. It's just the government should stay, should stay out of it. And then we make that transition from the government should stay out of it to actually big picture, if you think about all the options, this immoral thing is in fact a morally good thing. And here's what you're wanting me to do and I'm not gonna do it. Bro, you've got an example. You, I know you've got an example in your brains. Yeah, I've got one for each of you. I've got, I've got two actually. I've got two and if I said them and started talking about them, it was absolutely 100% the only thing that you would remember from this sermon. And that is not what I'm trying to get you to do. That's not what I'm trying to do. I'm not trying to make that point. But I am trying to get you to ask the question, where does my ultimate allegiance lie? Do my politics tell me what my values are? Or does God tell me what my politics are? If you don't feel a little bit political, politically homeless in our two-party system, there's a sense you're maybe you're just not quite paying attention. Because God's values are different than either of these two sets of values. But now there's just so much animosity and there's so much anger, so much isolation, so much I determine your value as a person based on your affiliation with one party or the other, or even if you affiliate with my party, your 100% loyalty to certain ideas or certain people within said party. And we allow other things, other than the God of the universe, to be the primary determiner of what my values, my morals, and what my life are supposed to be defined by. So we find ourselves, we're getting pushed and pulled in a whole lot of different directions. And we obviously know, I don't have to make this point, we obviously know the point of this is that I need to make my allegiance primarily to God. And I don't know what that's going to do. If I make my allegiance primarily to God, and rather than Rather than the pursuit of my own happiness or the pursuit of my own power, the pursuit of wealth, the, you know, or my, my ideological affiliation with a particular group of people, that if I, if I choose to make my primary allegiance with God, there will be consequences to it. 80% of the time, if I say something that, it's ha- that feels like just a little too close to home, I will end up having an uncomfortable conversation with somebody. There's a really good chance the next two or three days I'm going to have an uncomfortable conversation with somebody about some of the things I've already said because it hits a little too close to home. But I'm not afraid. I'm not afraid to say the things. And we should not be afraid even though consequences are going to come. And so now we've got our friends here. Daniel chapter 3 verse 12. But there are some Jews whom you've set over the affairs of the province of Babylon, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, who pay no attention to you, your majesty. They neither serve your gods nor worship the image of gold you have set up. When you choose to make a decision and say, I'm going to keep my primary allegiance to God, people are going to notice, and it's not always going to be positive. And so some people have noticed them, and they're not just random people. If there were random people that decided that they weren't going to bow down to the idol, they most likely would have just been executed on the spot or something like that. But this becomes a big deal because these three guys have been promoted to to governors in the Babylonian kingdom. And we found that out a couple of chapters ago with with Mark's story. And um, and so it's a big deal. These aren't just randos. These are are supposed leaders in the Babylonian kingdom who are refusing to bow down. So Nebuchadnezzar hears about this, verse 13. Furious with rage, 
Nebuchadnezzar summoned Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. So these men were brought before the king, and Nebuchadnezzar said to them, Is it true, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, that you do not serve my gods or worship the image of gold I've set up? Now, if you're paying attention, you might be wondering, it's a good question to ask, where's Daniel? Daniel's kind of the main character in all these stories so far. Book's named after him. But in this story, he's absent. And so you're kind of left to think, well, is he, is he bowing down somewhere? It's highly unlikely because he shows a lot, a significant amount of courage over, over things that are also going to get him executed. He never seems to waver in that courage. And if he did, the Bible is always really good to point out the weaknesses of even the heroes. It is most likely that because he was a, a person who lived in the court, that he was exempt from it, or because of his position was somewhere else during this time. Okay? But anyway, we got his three friends here. And they asked him, the king, the king asked him, is it true? Is it true that you're not doing this? And this is their response, verse 16, and there's so much gold here. Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego replied to him, King Nebuchadnezzar, we do not need to defend ourselves against you in this matter. I mean, that is a full rejection of idolatry. God has told us we only worship him. You're asking if we're going to worship someone else. This, is really, this, really, this really is outside of your concern. This is between us and God. This doesn't have anything to do with you. We don't have to defend ourselves to you. But can you imagine saying that to our murderous dictator, like right to his face? But this is what these guys say. Verse 17, if we are thrown into the blazing furnace, the God we serve is able to deliver us from it. And he will deliver us from your majesty's hand. Catch this. Verse 18, but even if he does not, we want you to know, your majesty, that we will not serve your gods or worship the image of gold you have set up. God can deliver. He can, he obviously can. And big picture, we know he will. But even if he doesn't, you need to understand this. We're not gonna worship your idol. And it's the core conviction that I feel like that, that, that these three guys are sharing is this, is that God, obviously, God can rescue you. God can rescue, but that's not the, that's not the point. But that's not the point. The point isn't that if I do the right thing for God, if I stand up and do the right thing for God and, and I honor him and I choose to worship him only, if I remain faithful to God, I know that nothing bad is going to happen to me, that God's always gonna show up and make sure nothing bad happens to me. That's not, that's not the point. And that's what these three guys are saying is like, yeah, God can rescue us. Yeah, I think he's going to. But even if he doesn't, we're not going to bow down to your idol. I believe that God is going to take care of me no matter what decisions, as long as I'm faithful to him, that God's going to be with me. But even if in any particular moment it doesn't go the way that it's, I think it's supposed to, if God doesn't show up in the way that I think that he should or the way that I want him to, it's not the point. I am going, the point is, I am going to honor God with my life. And I'm going to let him sit at the top of the pyramid of what drives me, what defines me, what, what helps me understand who I am and what life is supposed to be about. Whether or not circumstances fall into place, that's not the point. Because the interesting thing about it, and I'll give you a little spoiler here if you don't know this story, and we're only, I'm only spoiling like what's going to happen like five minutes from now, what I'm going to tell you, right? They're going to get thrown in the fire and they're going to come out okay. Right, spoiler, right? But in this moment right here, if you came up to these three guys and be like, do you think God's gonna protect you from 
bad circumstances, I think they would laugh at you. Like, bro, we've been arrested. We've been drugged before the king. He's he's just slobbering, cursing mad at us, and he's about to throw us in a fire. What do you, what could you possibly mean? Is God going to protect us from bad consequences? We are neck deep in them. They are already in a lot of trouble and have experienced a significant amount of persecution and all they've done is fail to worship an idol. And so this is what they're saying. is like, man, it's already been bad. Maybe it's going to get worse. Maybe God's going to protect us from worse. But it doesn't really matter. What matters is I'm going to be who God's called me to be. We're going to... We're going to do, we're, and we're going to do, we're going to be, we're going to be, we're going to be right. We'll do right. And I've experienced this a handful of times in my life where I just kind of have to reorient this idea about what it is I really expect from God. Because I'm, for the longest time, and I still come in and out of this sometime, I come out of this idea that if I do everything right, God's going to make sure nothing bad happens to me. It's a very naive worldview, but I think it's one that we just kind of carry around with us, that we just think that somehow that it is God's job to protect us from negative things when there's really almost no examples of that in the Bible. And this is not one of them, regardless of the fact that they come out of the fire alive. They went through a, they, they suffered plenty, they've suffered plenty three chapters in for just continuing to be faithful to God. This is at least the second time that they've been arrested. At least the third time they've been brought before the king frustrated. Just by choosing to live right. And I remember this moment in my life. The first time that God really had me with this, I was, I was 28 years old. I was doing this assignment for seminary where I was supposed to be expressing my feelings about God. And it felt really weird and uncomfortable to me. And I was really angry. I was angry at God because of some things that I've been experiencing in this move to Colorado. I was really frustrated with him. Everything seemed to be going wrong. And I'm sitting here in this roadside park trying to do this assignment where I'm talking out loud with God, sharing my feelings with him and doing all of this. And it just got more and more heated, right? And I'm, al- I'm alone in this part, by the way. And it eventually got to the point where I'm yelling at God. What happened to you? We had a deal. I do the right things and you make everything work out. I'm here in seminary. I've done nothing but what I'm supposed to do. And, and I'm doing all the right things. I'm following you every time. And I'm, do, and, and, and I'm, just, I'm, I'm just yelling at him. And he whispered. When I have two audible voice stories in my life. This is one of them. He whispers back to me. I never made that deal with you. That story is, was 22 years old this summer. And it has kind of redefined everything that I think about who it is that God's called me to be. And what this life is going to be like. Doing the right thing from God doesn't mean that everything's going to work out fine. And this is what they're saying. Is like we, even if it doesn't, we're going to be who God has called us to be. And so he throws them in the fire. And he's so angry at them at this point, he says it turns it up seven times hotter than it normally would be. And it's so hot that the guards that throw them in die just trying to get them to the furnace. It burns them up, throws them in. But suddenly they're looking at them and they're not dying. In fact, now there's a fourth person in there. Verse 25, look, Nebuchadnezzar, I see four men walking around in the fire, unbound, unharmed, and the fourth looks like a son of the gods. 
Nebuchadnezzar then approached the opening of the blazing furnace and shouted, Shadrach, Meshach, Abednego, servants of the Most High God, come out, come here. He throws them in there and nothing happens to them. They come out. Not only are they not dead, they're not burnt. Their clothes aren't even smoky. Nothing happened to them. And Nebuchadnezzar is completely blown away by this. And then he says this, verse 28. Praise be to the God of Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, who has sent his angel and rescued his servants. They trusted in him and defied the king's command and were willing to give up their lives rather than serve or worship any God except their own. It's pretty powerful. One of the cruelest, most evil men in history is now being convicted about who the one true God is. And we feel like he's, almost, we feel like he's there, but we'll just finish it out here, kind of figure out where he's still at. Verse 29, Therefore I decree that the people of any nation or language who say anything against the God of Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego be cut into pieces and their houses be turned into piles of rubble for no other God can save in this way. Man, thanks, but no thanks, bro. But he sees something. He, he saw something in them. He saw God and it just is really interesting. There's kind of this thread all throughout this first part of this book that it seems to be a lot of what these guys are having to go through is because God has his heart and his mind, his eyes set on this guy. I want this guy, perhaps the most powerful man in the world right now, I want him to see me for who I am. I want to change this guy. And if that means my guys have to go through some stuff, it's all going to be worth it because my heart is for this, I, I want this guy. But here's the thing that these three and Daniel, well, they've all experienced all throughout is that even though God may not always rescue the thing that we can know is this, is that he will always be in the fire with you. Always. Whatever situation you find yourself in, whatever trial you might be going through, I've done it all right, but I lost my job. I've done it all right, and I feel like I'm losing my marriage. I've done it all right, and I don't know how to pay my bills. I'm doing it. I don't, I don't, I don't know. I don't know what's going on. I feel overwhelmed. I feel like it's too much. And you're, and you're begging God, God, just do something. Help me, help me, help me. And maybe God will or won't rescue from this particular set of circumstances that you have. But again, that's not the point. The point is I'm going to be faithful to God and I can know for a fact that the God will be with me every step of the way in the fire. It is believed by most biblical scholars that is not an angel that was in that fire with them, but it was in fact Jesus. Jesus, before we know him, is Jesus. was in that fire with them and it becomes this incredible metaphor this incredible, powerful story about what God is doing in each and every one of our lives where the Son of God comes and meets you in your pain and brings you ultimate deliverance. He didn't save these guys from all the pain, but he was with them the whole time and ultimately brought them deliverance. And so at every moment along the way, these guys never lost hope and faith and trust in God. They knew they had hope and they knew big picture that God would deliver them. And no matter what this life throws at us, that is my heart, my greatest desire for you. 
is that you would have hope in the middle of whatever fire you may be going through or you may at some point go through. That you would have hope in this world and trust that the God of the universe is in the fire with you. And that know that no matter what this world throws at you, that God will deliver you and you will be with him forever in a world that no longer has the trials and the fires. Because Jesus, in the same way he comes into this fire, came into our world to see us at our worst so that we could have hope in this life and an amazing future with him in the next. So let's each one of us cling to that today. Let me pray. God, sometimes I do. I wish it were simpler. I trust you, bad things don't happen. But we don't have any reason to believe that. There's no stories in the Bible, no stories in our lives. God, trials are gonna come. And sometimes they're gonna come not because you did something wrong, but because you did something right. And we can feel overwhelmed. We can feel alone. We can feel like we're in a fire. And God, I pray that no matter what it is we're going through, that God, that you, you would be in it with us and we would feel it, we would know it. That God, that we would have real hope in this world. Not that circumstances are gonna get undone, but God, that the God of the universe is walking alongside of us. And God, I pray that we would not have hearts and eyes and minds in this world alone but have a faith and a hope and a trust and an eternal life that we have with you forever. God, I pray that we would be people of hope, that our confidence, our faith, our trust in you, our unwavering desire in relationship with you would give us hope in this world and would change the hearts of the people in our life who also need that hope. Again, we are so thankful for your son, Jesus Christ, and his sacrifice that makes all this possible. And it's in his name that we pray, amen.